If you're a listener of the show or follow my Insta account, then you know I'm a huge fan of what Instagram can do for your business. But I also know that it is tough to keep up, even if you have staff who could hypothetically do it for you. At my clinic, we outsource our marketing with Molly Cahill's team. So unfortunately, her agency is full at the moment, but that doesn't mean you can't work with Molly. She has something called the Holistic Marketing Hub, and it is a hybrid done with you program. And it's a one-stop shop for chiropractors and other health and wellness pros to not only learn how to use Instagram effectively, but also includes a massive content library of copy and paste chiropractic and other health captions. It has everything you need for you and your team to up your marketing game while not spending all your time coming up with new ideas. So what if you want to hire someone though to do your marketing for you? You're going to love this. She created a detailed job description with a training schedule, deliverables, and even sample pay rate. So let's say you have a mom in your practice who loves your clinic and is looking for something she can do from home. This is perfect. You can grab the free job description even if you don't join the Holistic Marketing Hub at mollycahill.com forward slash she slays. If you do decide to join the hub, make sure to use code she slays for $200 off. Hey, She Slays listeners, before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors, the Focus Academy. So you know chiropractic can help kids, but you lack confidence in your knowledge or communication skills to educate parents in your community. I've got a solution for you. The Focus Academy gives you the training and education to understand the why behind those wins and challenges you're seeing in clinic. They teach you how to perform a full brain-based exam, how to go beyond just the subluxation, but stay principled in your chiropractic approach and address and understand the consequences on brain development. They take a two-pronged approach. First, clinical solutions taught in a way that gives you full access to a deeper and more comprehensive understanding and breaks those techniques and approaches down into digestible and practical steps. Second, right now strategies you can employ wherever you are in your training. You'll learn how to seamlessly ask and answer the big questions in your clinical exams and re-exams and have it actually inform the whole child approach and care planning in a way your patients will understand. And since you're a She Slays listener, you'll get free access to the Focus Academy's Kickstart program. Just click the link in the show notes to get started on your journey to improving your practice. Hey, She Slayers, and welcome to another episode of She Slays the Day podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Brunslick, and today I fangirled out a little bit about our guest. Um, so I have been following the Holistic ob podcast on Instagram um, and their host, Dr. Nathan Riley, who's an OB for a while. Um, I think as chiropractors, we're just like, I mean, I won't speak for the men. You guys probably don't have this, but I think as a female chiropractor, we like look at any medical doctor who validates us instead of gaslights us. And we're just like, oh, hey, how you doing? <laughs> like, hi. Um, and so maybe you don't. I don't know. I remember being a student. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I hate when I start shit. And then I'm like, no, what, what are you doing? You don't want to share the story. <gasps> okay. But now I have to, because we have no editor who could, anyways, I'm joking, we do. Um, so when I was in school, Lawrence Pavelski, who um, taught for the ICPA, and I think he still does, like, he's a medical doctor who's like 
just preaching what chiropractors philosophy believe obviously he's with icpa and i just like fangirl girl crushed over him so hard and it was because he was an md that like i mean not saying he's not attractive or whatever like good looking guy but like it was doubly like there was this glamour around him that was like an md who supports what i think and validates that i'm not crazy i love it so anyways I've been following Nathan for a while. Back to the back to the real. Nobody tell anybody tells Lawrence Pavelski that I had a crush on him. I'm gonna kill you. You're not allowed to say you can kill people. Um, I'm gonna be so upset with you. It's our secret. So, anyways, and then I saw that some of my best friends, Dr. Mo and Tamara, were on his podcast, and I'm like, well, now you're even cooler to me. And so I reached out and said, I'm friends with them. Will you come on my podcast? And he said, Yep. So, gosh, I feel like we could have gone down, we could have gone down some like legit rabbit holes today. Um, and I actually apologize because I tried not, I try not to have, I don't want to say it, it wasn't a superficial conversation, but like I needed to know, I had just so many basic questions of like, why did you leave? Like, what was that process for you leaving a hospital? You know, have you been excommunicated from your peer. Like, so we just talk a lot about things and I just kind of want to know like, Hey, can you pull back the veil a little bit? Cause this is what I see currently in working with prenatal patients. Like, am I crazy or guess what? I'm not crazy. And yet means you're probably not crazy either. Um, so before we get into his bio and stuff, I want to tell you officially the most adult thing I think I've ever said to date. Uh, the other day I was at coffee with friends and I said, does Costco do eye exams? They do, by the way. Um, and that's what I got. And they said, and I said, yeah, but I think I have astigmatism. So will they help with that? I don't know. I haven't booked my appointment yet, but it is getting to the point. I'm pretty sure I have astigmatism. Y'all were really helpful with diagnosing my toe. So like, feel free to send me a DM. If, but don't send me if you're like, yes, it is astigmatism. If you think it's something completely different, then send me a message. Uh, but at nighttime, like all the lights, like headlights and lamps have like these little halos around them. And then you add any kind of water, pers perspiration? No, condensation. Is that what we call water, snow, rain? That's what we're looking for. Um, mist, fog. I can't see shit. I might as well be like six drinks in the bag. I would be safer driving than me driving completely sober with mist in the air and my stigmatism. So there's been a couple of times where I've come home and I've just been like, Kirby, I really need to schedule an appointment. It is getting dangerous. Um, so I still haven't done it. So that's goals for 2024. Get glasses to wear while I'm driving at night and it's misting and perspiring out. Um, yeah. And I still continue to love Costco. I still though, how the hell does lower middle class not lose their, honestly, even middle class. So I have been to Costco twice and this is not a flex here, but the first time I spent $800 and the second time I spent $900. Y'all, like that is, both of those are more than our mortgage payment. And then everybody who lives in bigger cities is like, wait, what? Yes, we live in a five bedroom, three bath, 4,000 square foot house. 
And our mortgage is seven something. Are you jealous? You should be. Uh, you too can live in Rice Lake. If you're looking for a job, you can have a great mortgage. Um, anyways, so the first time I checked out and my total came to $800, I asked the person, we go, okay, because here's the backstory. Costco just opened in the town nearby, not Rice Lake. Oh my God, not Rice Lake. Uh, in the town 45 minutes from here. And so everybody's joining it, right? Like it's like the cool grocery store. Everybody's going there. And so I can just picture people who are not used to shopping in bulk like this, like having a freaking breakdown. Like we do well. And I still remember the time where I accidentally spent like $400 at Target, like unprepared. Like, you know, when you go unprepared, you're like, all right, this is going to be expensive because I have to get this, this, and this. And like, you know, well, it was kind of one of those times where it was like, it was toilet paper and the school supplies and the this and the that. And so like, there was nothing like I need, could return. I was just like, ah, ah, I didn't mean to spend that much. And so I don't know. The person just like laughed and thought I was joking when I asked like, has anybody cried? And she's like, ah, not really. And I'm like, I want to hear about the not really. Like, but they have, like, has anybody said, well, I got to put half of this back? Like, I just, it has to get awkward at checkout. I I would say that I'm going to add this to my list of jobs that I'll do when I'm an empty nester, but like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, that doesn't sound like it would be very fun. So just let me know if you've ever been behind someone who's cried or you've cried. I'd love, love to hear your sob story and I will continue to uh, work on my eye exam. All right. Nathan Riley is a father of two, born at home, is a burner, psychonaut, and fitness enthusiast. He left the conventional medical model due to issues with profit-driven practices and insurance models. Despite facing job loss during COVID for whistleblowing, Nathan now runs Beloved Holistics, supporting clients through fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum. He also attends home births and provides collaborative care for midwives nationwide. Currently exploring jujitsu, he's dedicated to a holistic approach to well-being, and he's the host of the Holistic OB-GYN podcast. So make sure you check that out. So let's take a breather. Let's calm our nervous system. Do a couple belly breaths for me. Are you clenching your jaw? What's the narrative in your head right now? Have you been being mean to yourself today? Have you been talking trash to yourself? You've been judging, you've been shaming. What kind of cycle are you in today? Whatever you can do in this moment to just think something nice about you, be proud of yourself. You've done some hard shit. I don't know you personally. I mean, I know some of you personally, but like, I know the last few years could not have been easy. <laughs> Like, I know because I follow you on Instagram, like, I know we're in this shit bowl soup together. And like, I'm proud of you. I'm like, you should be really proud of you. And I want you to know that during some of the most successful moments of my life in the last year, weeks, honestly, even weeks, I have felt such strong feelings of imposter syndrome and self-shame and doubt. And so I tell you that because like, stop it. How you talk to yourself now, you could have, you tell yourself like, oh, if you lost that 10 pounds, you wouldn't like critique yourself so much. Yeah, you would. You tell yourself if you saw a hundred more people a week, you'd feel like a worthy chiropractor. No, you wouldn't. Um, 
you know, do some of those things solve health or financial issues a little bit, but like you can always talk nice to yourself at any point in your goals and where you're at. And so for those that needed to hear that, I love you. Stop being mean. Be nice to yourself like you would to those around you. All right. That wasn't really a prayer, but it was your Lauren self-talk for the day. Um, okay. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Nathan Riley. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thanks for- hey, Lauren, don't like, don't like hold back here. I want people to like get, let's get into the weeds. People my first question was going to be, are you easily offendable? i haven't been offended for a long time my ego went out the went out the window when i was in all those years of training and everything i mean granted that doesn't mean i don't have an ego it just means that like for me to be offended now based on the platform i've built and the types of work the type of work that i do is like not serving anybody so you can observe interesting that offended me why did that offend me yeah do that work probably me it's probably not you it's probably me so let me do that work like that's that's something i've had to learn the hard way i guess (laughs) yeah okay so i hate asking questions that i'm sure you've answered a bunch of times but i did try and stalk you and i couldn't really find the transition from being, cause you went all the way through like your residency and all of that. Correct. Oh, shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then now you are a home birth OB guy. Yeah. Yes. I've got a, I've got a lady in labor right now after four C-sections and given, I think the nature of your audience, they'll probably appreciate that she is determined to stay out of the hospital and would rather rebirth. <laughs> Then go back in. And if I wasn't going to help her, she would have been birthing at the Ronald McDonald house. Why is she at the Ronald McDonald house? Because she has a, a roughly two-year-old now who had his six-month pediatric visit um, a couple days after getting all the shots, ended up paralyzed with a feeding tube and a breathing tube. And she's like, listen, he was healthy and he's not healthy. I don't know what it is. She's always been an advocate for vaccines and whatnot, but she's like, it sure as heck seems like somebody broke my boy. So it sure as heck seemed like something went wrong. Something went wrong. Yeah. So, so what (laughs) went, what went right in your life that you were kind of like, because I don't feel like it's probably presented as an option in med school of like, and then you can just do this wherever you want. You can do this out of a hospital. No big deal. Like, I'm sure that was not like option C that you were like, I'll do that one. No, you know, doctors like chiropractors, we work very, very hard. We're studying and studying and studying for our entire adult, like early adult life. And not once was I ever really presented with this being a way that you can have a baby being outside of the hospital without all this technology and these pharmaceuticals, you know, I mean, most of the book work is studying pathology. That's what doctors do. We study pathology and we have a rough idea as to what a, a person based on the generalizable population is supposed to how they're supposed to be sort of operating but um but frankly no i didn't i don't think i got had any insight in fact i think when i went to residency i had this idea that midwives were like lazy stupid incompetent uneducated people you know because mm-hmm. that's the characterization of the media and that's the only exposure i yeah. had i didn't get the alternative dangerous view. hippies dangerous hippies that have dreadlocks on their skirts and blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that they actually are way better at this than I am. So. (laughs) So when did you realize, like, did you kind of have a moment where you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing this anymore. When did you realize like, I need to do something different? Oh, very early on. Um, 
you know, a story that I like to tell is, is like, you know, they say that we're limited to duty hours when we're in residency and that's in order to keep patients safe and for our own well-being to make sure that we're getting sleep and whatnot. But when you really figure in all of the time we spend studying and practicing outside of our work hours, it's about a hundred hours per week. And as a result, you, you, you're in your mid, mid to late twenties, you sacrifice sleep and you end up just being this zombie drone walking through the hospital, doing emergency things that have high sort of high possibilities of going wrong, operating around organs and vessels. And you get really good at, at operating on very little sleep. But for me, it was like, how many times do I have to get up in the middle of the night and go check somebody's cervix when they're sleeping? I have to wake them up. I have to get the nurse in there. I have to do all of this stuff in order to quote, check on the cervix. Like, what am I doing here? Like, they don't like it. I don't like it. The nurses don't like it. And the only person that is requiring this of me is some illusory sort of uh, attending physician who's expecting me to have updated what their cervical exam is. So I stopped doing that. And it, 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 frankly, it led to better outcomes. So it was like, well, this is interesting. This is the thing that we we pivot every bit of our resources around this, this elusive cervical dilation thing and when I'm not even paying attention to the cervical dilation, actually the moms and dads and the nurses and even my colleagues, everybody's happier and they're not ending up with C-sections. So that was the first glimpse. But then I also had the pleasure of working with certified nurse midwives at Kaiser where I went to, to uh, my residency. And, and it's a great program to train at, but had I not had the exposure to somebody who's literally just sitting on their hands and letting this process unfold, I don't think I ever would have gotten there. That was a really, really impactful part of my training. Okay, so then our does your profession hate you? Like, are you like considered a black sheep whistleblower or like, I, I can't imagine that. Yeah, I don't have a lot of friends in the OBGYN community. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think that they hate me. I actually think deep down when we sit and actually chat, people are like kind of envious of the life mm. that I live. Like I get to go up, get up in the morning and be with my kids and go play pickleball. And if there's a birth happening or if there's a client call, I get back for that in the afternoon. I mean, of course, births can happen at all times, but I don't take 10 births a month. I take just select people who care for themselves, who I know are going to to honor this process on multiple levels and, and who don't see it as a medical procedure. So um, so deep down, I actually think that they really appreciate what I do, but it's very confronting to everything that they've invested their time and their energy in. And through cognitive dissonance, they can try to convince themselves that yeah, birth control should be given to every 15-year-old and hysterectomies, you know, don't matter. And, you know, leap procedures lopping off the top of your cervix for abnormal cells, that that's not a big deal because it's just an appendage and who cares, right? I think deep down, they really actually resonate with what I do. But yeah, I don't have too many people that are like, wow, I want to be like you. <laughs> At least so they don't what, say it. Really. <laughs> what keeps them there? The money? Does it come back yeah. to like, cause I mean, a lot of, I mean, I just hear, I hear things about like, they pay for your schooling. Like, wow, that sounds nice. I had to pay back my, like, kind of, yeah, it's not quite that. It's not quite that glamorous. I mean, so like, you know, the, somebody just on Instagram just today had said, you know, and they don't pay OBGYNs. They're one of the lowest paid specialties. Well, not really. It's, I think the average is something like 350 K per year. However, if you're like me and you had to use loans the whole way, you have nearly $500,000 in debt and you've been trained to use your hands as a surgeon. So why would you give up those skills? Like I don't do mm. surgery. I don't even do C-sections mm. anymore. In fact, I'm I'm actually going to start practicing again with a local OB who's a friend of mine, one of them who attended our first birth, which was in the hospital, just to like 
just to reintroduce myself into the the, the C-section. I mean, granted, I've done 500 or something. It's like riding a bike, but- You've done 500 lot, C-sections? Probably, like you stop counting after a while. Wow. I mean, like you can do it in like 20 minutes. Like it is such a dangerous surgery that we are so good at because we do so many of them in our training that why wouldn't you just do that whenever the labor's stalling out and your shift's about to change? So- so to answer your question, there is a financial incentive to staying in the system. You get the 401k, you get all of the healthcare benefits, you get all of those things. And if you can just play by the rules that you you shined with, you shined at, at playing by the rules, your entire educational process, why not just keep doing that and say, hey, for other people, you can go have a home birth, but most people we're going to attend to them and sustain probably the most not probably, definitely the most lucrative unit in the hospital, which is the maternity unit. It's an it's an intensive care level unit. And um, you get paid decent money for that. Not neurosurgery rates, but pretty good money. So I don't I don't think it makes sense to compel doctors to step out and do what I do mm-hmm. because there there are a lot of financial reasons to do that. I just it wasn't for me. It wasn't my calling. It wasn't my it felt like self-betrayal to stay in that system because that's not the the birth that my wife and I wanted to have, certainly not the right. second at home on our bed. So um, so why would I, I can't keep doing that. Like, it's just not me to keep just plugging away, doing the thing that doesn't serve me or make me feel good. Now, OBs have outrageous malpractice, don't you? What's like the yeah. average malpractice a year? I don't carry malpractice coverage um, because it's too expensive. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably couldn't afford it, but I hear rumors that six figures. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at probably probably four to 5K per month if you pay out of pocket. Wow. So yeah, so then it's just like, you know, we're going to take care of your malpractice for you. We're going to take care of that. So then why didn't you, air quotes, just be like kind of what a lot of women's dream OB would be in the hospital. There's a lot of bees, um, but like, yeah. you know, did you not feel like you could, because there's certified nurse midwives, right? Like you said that, like, you know, could you have simply practice more like them and then like had your cake and ate it too? Probably could have tried to make that work. I mean, I did that for about two years after residency, most notably at a hospital in Encinitas, California, very, very healthy population, very healthy population of pregnant women Mm -hmm. um, and very homogeneous as well. It's like largely white Christian. So you didn't have a lot of surprises there versus where I live now in Kentucky. You have every such thing coming in, and there's like an, a catastrophe around every corner. Whether it's in the op- in the ER or somebody who needs to go to the operating room, or they're high as a kite on methamphetamines and their placental placenta is abrupting. So I was good at managing emergencies because that's all that I did. What was called what's what's called a hospitalist, a laborist, meaning I'm the guy who's in the hospital who's there to manage every OBGYN emergency because the oh. doctors get their close on in the middle of the night and drive in. So frankly, doing that though, would presume that birth in the hospital can be done the same way that it can be at home. And Mm -hmm. I just don't see, it is like baseball and hockey. It's totally different rules. There's different procedures. And most importantly, you know, if Lauren, if you are my client, you are at the center of your care at home. And I would prefer that because I don't, feel like I'm the captain of the ship anyways. I act like I can control the labor and the birth outcome, but I can't. So instead, I have to lean on policies and procedures written and passed down from people who are not in the arena with me. 
And if I don't follow those, then I don't get paid and I lose my job and it looks like, you know, a big deal, right? But um, so I guess I, in an ideal world, I would have an, a unit that I could completely sort of define the parameters as to how we're going to do this from, from the moment they walk in the hospital. But but the reality is you have all these joint joint commission and you have insurance companies that will say what you can and can't do. Right. So there's almost no way for me to do what I do, which is to get great outcomes for people starting from preconception on in the way that the hospital or the clinical experience really has been outlined, uh, laid out for me. There's really no way to deviate from that. No, that makes sense. And I mean, this is a can of worms that we're going to crack open, but like, so who is setting some of these policies if it's not who we wish it was you know we wish the ob's were using their knowledge and the art of birthing but they don't have a choice like who yeah. are you know even when it comes to like hpv all of these things who is it then who's like saying no this is what you have to do well there's something called standard of care which uh, is probably similar in the chiropractic world, but it's it's a there's a probably a little bit more autonomy for you as the practitioner to decide what does this person need. But standard of care, what that means is that a consensus has been has been arrived at by a variety of veteran, generally doctors, generally OBGYNs, who put together a sort of a, I mean, you could call it very very literally a practice guideline, and they say, listen, this is the standard of care. If you choose to deviate from this, so be it. You better and be able so to defend yourself, though. Yeah. And sometimes even, even the most like, like to the T OBGYN in the system is occasionally going to, you know, sort of differ from those guidelines because of what the client is telling them or whatever else. But if you are to deviate from that standard of care, which is very much what guides hospital policies and procedures and something goes wrong, you're fucked. So you can say whatever you want in court, but they would say, what does the American College of Obstetricians mm -hmm. and Gynecologists say? Furthermore, the insurance companies, if if you were to come into my practice, we might spend two or three hours talking about lifestyle. They are not going to pay me for any of that time. So that has to just be money that I'm like time I'm giving away. And if I were doing that and not making a paycheck otherwise, that's very, very hard to do. So the insurance insurance companies work with hospitals to determine what's called a fee schedule. And they say, we will pay you this amount of money for doing these various things. You send the bill to them, they pay you, and then whatever's left over has to be paid by the by the client. That's like deductible co-payment premiums. That whole conversation is super complicated. But at the end of the day, if the insurance company is ultimately one, ultimately the one reimbursing you, you have to do things based on what they said. Otherwise, you might have to front that bill, which isn't going to happen. They're just not going to let that happen. Instead, wow. they say, you don't have privileges here anymore. We're not having you, we're not letting you operate at our hospital anymore. This is what happens to great doctors like Brad Boots Taylor in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a high-risk OB, very, very compassionate. He happens to be Black, so he's serving a, a very large portion of the population there that needs compassionate OBGYN care. He's doing breach. He's doing, he's like doing everything. And at some point, they just said, no, we're not renewing your privileges. So he no longer can admit and attend births in the hospital. That's what would have happened to me in about four mm -hmm. seconds. Like, you know, we're not letting you attend breach here. Like, okay, well then I, I guess I can't be a hospital doctor anymore. <laughs> so yeah. I just, I just saw myself out instead of waiting for them to, to come to that conclusion. So why is, I mean, does it come back to that a hospital is running a business, but like, it seems like from the outside, the standard of care is going a very different direction 
then yeah and it's like it's all just based on like well insurance won't pay for this anymore i mean even in my town so i live in a town of 9000 like i'm in rural northern wisconsin and when i moved here and started practice we had six different hospitals within probably a 40 mile diameter <laughs> not even radius a 20 mile radius that were birthing and now there's one um and so you what the standard of care that I seen back then compared to now, it's like every woman got lactation help before she left the hospital. Now right. it's like, well, you can call and maybe set up an appointment. Every woman who had a C-section saw, talked to physical therapy before they left. I'm having women carrying in their like their carrier and their baby in their diaper bag, like one week postpartum. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And they're like, what? I'm like, did they talk to you about lifting or anything? Um, so why is the standard of care sucking so much? Like, it seems like, shouldn't we as more research, like, it's just so sad because we're, we see all this research. We see the outcomes in babies that have these uninterrupted births or, you know, yeah. and then, and then it's like, why are you doing the opposite? Right. Well, a lot of people, including myself, have liked to put the fire to the bottoms of the OBGYNs. And frankly, it is actually far more complicated than doctors deciding to do what's maybe better or not so great for a baby. Back in the 60s, there were two presidents that actually had a role in um, pushing legislation that actually became sort of like official policy. I don't even, I don't know legalese, but the um so jfk john f kennedy so the guy who was assassinated he was the first um who um he had a baby one of their children the kennedys had a child that ended up having um a, a lung issue i think it was like a lack of surfactant right which helps the lungs expand whenever the baby's born so what they found was when babies are born premature or they need some really really heavy duty assistance after birth that our, what is now the neonatal intensive care units, they weren't really up to snuff. So they pushed a ton of money and find financing through philanthropy and through tax dollars and whatnot into making a more robust neonatal intensive care program in the United States. And what that ended up meaning was if a baby is born in the hospital and a hospital had a NICU, they can do a whole bunch of stuff and make additional money from the maternity care system. And like, I think that they very, a lot of doctors and nurses in that setting would very, very much like to believe that if that setting wasn't there, it wasn't glorified. The baby would have died. The baby would have died, right? So now that's not to mention that we are causing a lot of NICU admissions through all the other interventions that happen. But here's where the second president comes into play. So in the 80s, Ronald Reagan pushed, um, I think they called them like the, the baby dough policies or something, um, the baby dough mandates. And what that ended up producing was a bunch of punitive measures when we didn't intervene because if you, if you had done that C-section, that baby wouldn't have gotten cerebral palsy. So there ended up basically being this, this sort of these sort of legal mandates that if you as the parent decided I'm not going to have a C-section, you could actually be punished like, mm -hmm. like the court of, I'm guessing like criminal law mm -hmm. or not having done everything to save your baby, even if it was a baby that wasn't going to survive afterwards, right? Like you need to do everything. So I only say these things because when you start to unpack what happened to maternity care in the United States, 
we ended up throwing more and more technology to try to save every single baby. And, and, and the cost came to autonomy within the birth experience. No longer do you have a say because I don't want to be sued and nobody wants to have a dead baby. And we mm -hmm. have all of the technology to ensure that the baby's dead. Doesn't mean the baby's healthy, but the baby's alive. Right. Um, by throwing all of this technology and stuff, we've developed a pattern, a programmed behavior within how OBGYNs practice, where they're trying to avoid lawsuits, they're trying to keep their job, and they're trying to get good outcomes, which is trying defined, to keep babies alive. Yeah. Yeah, like like healthy mom, healthy baby. Like that's the goal. That is the only goal. And we're very, very good at doing that. Are we though? Aren't we like 34th? Of all the nations, we are last, but that absolute risk of a mom or baby dying is still way less than 1%. Okay. So, so yeah, if you look at it like from a percentage, okay, right. is, we're very, we are actually very good at it, um, but. Hey, She Slayers, real quick. If you're in the scaling stage of practice and your clinic is looking for an associate, be sure to check out advertising on my Instagram and Facebook socials page. It can take months and months to find the right fit for your clinic and posting anywhere and everywhere you can can shorten the amount of time that that takes. So in addition to posting on Facebook groups and state association classifieds, get your ad viewed by thousands of chiropractic students and new grads who follow She Slays the Day. Click the link below to apply for next month's ad. We only take nine each month and it's first come first serve. And if you're a student or new grad who wants to make sure you get those monthly ads, Click the other link below to make sure you get each month's new job listings delivered straight to your inbox. Back to the episode. As a chiropractor who's deeply passionate about providing the best care, I've got a secret weapon I want to share with you. Genesis Chiropractic Software. My journey with Genesis started 13 years ago, and back then I was juggling insurance claims and Genesis was a lifesaver. It streamlined the whole insurance process, making it seamless and stress-free. But here's the kicker. Even after I transitioned to a cash-based practice, Genesis continued to be an indispensable part of my clinics. Why do I stick with Genesis? Because it's more than just software. It's a comprehensive solution that adapts to your practice's needs. When I went from one clinic to two, it could have been a logistical nightmare. But thanks to Genesis being cloud-based, I can manage both clinics effortlessly, anytime, anywhere. It keeps me on top of my patient records and provides invaluable data to analyze the health of my clinics. The insights help me make informed decisions to continually improve. And now I'm excited to offer something special to my She Slays listeners. When you visit genesischiropracticsoftware.com forward slash She Slays, you'll get an exclusive discount on Genesis Chiropractic Software. Whether you're dealing with insurance or running a cash-based practice, Genesis is the versatile tool that will elevate your chiropractic business. So don't wait, take your practice to the next level. Head over to genesischiropracticsoftware.com forward slash She Slays for your exclusive discount. Trust me, with Genesis, you're not just surviving in your practice, you're thriving. So what are those 33 or, I don't, well, do you think back in the 80s, were we less, were we even worse than that or like? Well, I think the statistic that in, in, in your audience and the people in the pediatrics world will appreciate this, especially from the lens of another healing modality of chiropractics. Just because a baby is alive and leaves the NICU, does that mean that that baby's ever going to go to high school or be able to mm -hmm. talk or walk or whatever else, right? 
Likewise, for a woman who ends up nearly losing her life after her fifth C-section, when the first was completely unnecessary in the first place. Um, let's say you end up having your placenta grow into the uterine wall, and later you need a, a cesarean hysterectomy for placenta accretum spectrum disorder. That is the highest morbidity and mortality diagnosis you could ever, you know, you could ever uh, uh, come up with, right? Like in your pregnancy. So at the cost of future pregnancies and the well-being of the mother and the baby and how they're bonding and co-regulating, and maybe even the, the benefit of the baby's microbiome coming through the vaginal canal, we don't look long-sighted. Our only directive is make sure mom and baby leave the hospital and then we can wipe our hands clean. So the morbidity piece has actually worsened dramatically. And that's where people get caught up. It's like, yeah, we're 34th in mortality, big deal. The absolute risk is still super low, even for black women, which is two to three times higher mm -hmm. than white women. But what about the morbidity? How much trauma are we doing? Like physical trauma, but also the mental, emotional, even spiritual well-being of people. And that's what's manifesting, I think, in this birth conversation, which is like, yeah, so I had a healthy baby, but I felt completely dismissed as a person giving birth or having this safe, sacred experience in the hospital. So this is a very, very compli complicated conversation, mm -hmm. but uh, frankly, we should be doing way better with how much we spend on healthcare, even if the absolute risk is low. Right. So you have the born free method. Yeah. What, what is that? So in this program, which we're adding a bunch of content to for the relaunch in a couple of weeks, um, depending on when this episode airs, is basically a start to finish a comprehensive educational and support program for people that want to have kids. Okay. So it's, it's for parents or, and practitioners okay. because it covers quite a bit of stuff that you may not even have learned in your OBGYN training or in your midwifery training, because I have the luxury of doing both. Mm -hmm. And the co-creator is Sarah Rosser, who did her entire apprenticeship and her, basically her entire professional life has been on the farm in Tennessee, but she recently resigned because of a whole sorts of political things. But but frankly, her being a very radical midwife and me being an OBGYN that straddles these two worlds, we try to give people answers to almost every question that might arise in their pregnancy, as well as all of the lifestyle advice in order to prevent a lot of those things from happening in the first place. So how do you start to take, um, let's say you have a couple and I mean, they're coming to you. So they're obviously, the fact that they're even coming to you is like, you know, that there's an opening, that there's there's doubting that the hospital is yeah. the right system. So maybe the better question is, let's say you're at Christmas dinner or at a, di a dinner party and you're needing to start de-escalating the fear yeah. that has been built up. So maybe it's her mother-in-law, maybe it's her husband, maybe, you know, you're just having a conversation with a, a nurse who works in labor and delivery. And she's like, how are you not killing babies? You know, how do you start de-escalating that fear? Well, first off, I always ask them, when's the last time you heard about a, a perfectly healthy, uncomplicated, undisturbed home birth? And they usually say never. And that's because people don't talk about that. People don't talk about the mm -hmm. 90 some percent of women who are giving birth outside of the hospital. And it's so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like so unremarkable. We don't even talk about it. But instead that headline of a baby being decapitated or, you know, the mom's head popping off or whatever in the media makes it seem like this is the most irresponsible thing in the world. So I usually approach this not by trying to battle with data. We saw how that goes in COVID. We see how that goes during our political camp, you know, uh, election cycles. But instead, it's just asking questions like, 
like how sure are you that you really understand what you're talking about with home birth? Because frankly, if you look in the NICU, most of those babies came from maternity units right down the hall. Mm-hmm. And most of those babies, given our, our sort of statistical probability, were induced prematurely. They weren't given any nutritional or otherwise advice in order to help prevent or mitigate the reversible conditions that are most likely to complicate your pregnancy, namely the hypertensive disorders, including preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. Um, nobody's ever talked to you about that. And now you've got that thing and your baby's um, grown a little like big and chunky in the shoulders and you had a history of a shoulder dystocia, obviously now you have to have a C-section, right? Like this is how the conversation goes. And then a lot of these babies through the rigors of this highly interventive process of forcing a baby out of the uterus, they end up in the, in the NICU. So the next question is like, how many of the babies in your hospital are in the NICU? Oh, 10. What percentage of those came from home? Zero, like maybe one. And if you look at the actual data around deaths of babies, like this is stuff that you can't just like go and bury the baby and pretend like it didn't happen. Like, like this isn't the fifties, right? Or I don't know when. Well, it's not even like vaccine, adverse vaccine reactions where it's like, yeah, but it's probably way worse than it is. It's like, nope this is yeah it's it's not like it's actually like in this case it's as good as it sounds so when you've become conditioned to believe there's only one way to have a baby sometimes just asking questions to elicit like what do you really feel about this are you just saying the thing that somebody else said and you said that sounds cool let me push this OBGYN to you know over the over the edge at the end of the day it's not my job to convince any nurses doctors or even women that home birth is safer because safety is a relative term if you're if you tell me I'd rather my baby die than have a C-section, that's still your prerogative. That's not something many people would say. But when you present that to an OBGYN, they would say, of course, you're going to have a C-section. Like, no, you have to get consent to cut into her belly. So people naturally are going to gravitate towards one or the other about, I don't know, point, maybe 1% of people are trying to have home births nowadays. Very rarely does an experienced midwife or an OBGYN have to transfer because birth generally doesn't go wrong when we don't intervene unnecessarily. So uh, naturally the conversation kind of goes that way, but it's not my job to convince anybody. Sometimes I'll just say, yeah, maybe you're right. And I'll keep eating. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on the mood you're in that day for sure. Yeah, it depends on which hat I'm wearing. You know, if if I have my my Italian Alps hat on, then I may be less of a fighter. (laughs) You're like, not today, Gina, not today. We're not going into this today. (laughs) Okay. So with the testing that we do, so you had talked about gestational diabetes and the other, what was the other thing that you, oh, blood pressure. So those are kind of like the two big things that can go wrong that all of a sudden put a woman on this conveyor belt of like, oh shit. Yes. Can, can you deny doing the GBS testing can like in a hospital setting? GBS, gestational diabetes, uh, uh, you don't even have to wear their hospital gown. You don't have to have an ID. You don't have to get any medicine. You don't have to do anything. If you get those things, it's because you said yes. Mm-hmm. And you may have not even felt like you should say yes, but you said yes. And that's why they did it. So do you do any testing? Like what kind of tests do you do or in your ideal world? What are you, you know, mom's yeah. like, whatever you think, Dr. Nathan. Well, there's an issue with the question because it's not my job to tell you what to do or not to do. It's my job to educate you around the risks, benefits, and alternatives to any test, screen, intervention, or otherwise. And then when you make that decision, I can say, hey, listen, I don't do that. I don't do IV antibiotics in the home. 
frankly. So mm -hmm. if we're going to do the GBS swab, here are going to be the options if it comes back positive. We can try an oral penicillin if you're allergic to that. It's very, very hard for us to do oral vancomycin. They do have oral vancomycin, but it's like, you know, um, frankly, it's like the, the question as to what do I do or not do is not relevant. What do my clients uh, ultimately decide? Most of my clients ultimately decide to do none of the things. Um, the only one that's usually like 50-50 is the Rogam injection, which is to prevent alloimmunization. 50-50? Probably about I, that. Yeah. How How is 50%? Like I, in my brain, I, I didn't have to deal yeah. with that decision in my pregnancies, but like even I, I didn't think that was optional. Like from a health standpoint, how are the women who are not getting it, how are they okay? <laughs> like to educate yeah. me, please. Yeah, I mean, the risk of alloimmunization is something like 15%. If I recall, I'd have to go and look up the statistics. But I have I have had women, I mean, you have to consider where I'm located. Where are you located? Nebraska, did you say? Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. Okay. So somewhere up there where nobody knows the different state boundaries. Gotcha. Um, Kentucky is the same way. But people are like, where's Kentucky? And I'm like, it's in the South. Not really, though. It's kind of in yeah. the Midwest. Right. So in Wisconsin, uh, as with many of the Great Lakes states, including Kentucky and a lot of the sort of Northern South, we have huge Amish populations. They may mm -hmm. have had babies and they may have had, they may have RH negative blood. I've had a woman give birth to her eighth baby and never get Rogam. And she still has babies that didn't allo, she didn't allo immunize, meaning she didn't develop antibodies against the RH factor. And um, many of her babies were RH positive. So the, the, the point here is that there is a risk. Are you willing to take that 15% risk or not? And if not, okay, like that's not on me, that's on you, right? If it was my wife and I, I don't know. I'd be, it'd be hard pressed, but we weren't in that position. You know, my, my wife and I are both, you know, um, well, at least, at least my wife, we both are positive, but as long as my wife is positive or oh, any woman is positive, we don't have to worry about it. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I can't force you to do anything. I can say, here's what I recommend. Here's why I recommend it. Here's the consequences of not doing that thing. And here's the benefits of doing it. One big thing that has emerged during the COVID years is that RH is made from whole blood. This Rogam is made from whole blood. So in theory, if there's something in the blood of contaminated people who got the vaccine, some people are worried. And I haven't been able to really sort this out yet for them. They're worried about spike protein or something else mm -hmm. being into this contaminated, you know, through this contaminated blood. So, you know, Mormons, uh, or is it Mormons? I think Mormons are, are or fifth, Seventh-day Adventists, one of the two Christian groups that are predominant out in sort of the Western and mountain states, they will refuse Rogam because it's made from whole blood. They won't get blood transfusions. It's not a part of their, their theology. So, um, so this is how the conversation has to go. Mm -hmm. It's not just you do it or you don't do it. It's let's have a big conversation around what this might mean. And if your baby does is exposed to antibodies through alloimmunization because you didn't get Rogam in your first, you know, your last pregnancy, that baby can come be, become very sick and die in the uterus. So as long as you're willing to appreciate that there is a, a percentage of babies that, 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 that will happen to, it's not my job to tell you, you know, um, what to do. It's my job to really counsel you and then support you in your decision. Oh my gosh. I can easily see how, I mean, I, I don't think I would be one of those brave women. Like I can easily see where we have, we're so, hmm, how do I want to say this? I am less okay. I think we as a society are a lot less comfortable with babies dying than maybe they were in the 1800s type of thing. 
like right like you're, you know it's just like okay um no if there's a five percent chance all of a sudden i'm like i can't have a five percent chance of my baby die and like i think infant mortality was more normal you know like you had a kid who was on the outside and then like a year and a half they got they got that thing and they died you know like it and so it's like we have gotten very hmm I don't want to say like you know I can see how the hospital has this breeding ground of like you're terrified of a point you know because where's the percentage like okay so you say 15 percent, and I'm like oh Sorry, sorry, Dr. Nathan. I, I, I don't, I can't, I couldn't do that. Um, but then you're like, all right, five percent. I'm like, mm, I think I'd still do it. Okay, one percent. Okay, well now I'm getting a lot more comfortable, you know. And so it's just like, so, so Lauren, let me pose it like this to you. Um, we have a hard time ascertaining risk when it comes to dead babies, right? Mm -hmm. Say what it is. Like we have a hard time saying dead babies. That's a yeah. big part of the problem. Like sometimes babies don't survive no matter what we do. Mm -hmm. it was that failure of the medical sciences? Was that a bad doctor? Was that a bad midwife? oftentimes no the baby just didn't make it through labor and that mm -hmm. is not something we're okay with which is why we're willing to force your legs open and have somebody hold you down and force our hand inside of you to quote check on the cervix or the baby or whatever which right. doesn't make any, any lick of sense out of outside of very very rare circumstances if you were to walk into a casino and you had like five grand on you burning a hole in your pocket and you walk over to like i don't know the blackjack table not blackjack uh, craps or something right or roulette and you put all your money down on one spot and the risk the likelihood of you winning is one in a hundred let's say it's one in a hundred right it's one percent if you were to win all that money would you say i'm damn like of course i won all that money no you would say that was fucking lucky of me yeah yeah. But we we do the diff we do a different sort of we have a hard time ascertaining risk when it comes to the 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 lives of babies. And that's in part because we're afraid of mortality altogether. But it's also it's also really important to to mention that when a baby dies or when a, a mom dies, there is very, very, very little support that comes in the way of any of these agencies, hospital administrators, social services, in order to help that father care for that baby now without their mother, or for that couple to seek out some support over, you know, this bad thing that happened, their baby dying. So we 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 don't do a great job of supporting you. So of course we're afraid because it's not just afraid of, of the baby dying and you losing a piece of you, which is probably the hardest thing any woman or, or partner, you know, can go through. It's also that like, you know, you're, you're going to be alone with these feelings for the rest of your life. And that really sucks. Like we have a lot to work on on the other side of this as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the postpartum support is a huge thing that is again, like so incredibly yeah. lacking. Do you, when, how much postpartum interaction are you having with your, with your patients, your clients? With yeah, very babies. little, actually. Very little. I mean, I, I want to do some more training on some uh the sort of rituals and kind of calling in the ancestors and closing mm -hmm. the ceremony. But I always do a little burning ceremony where mm -hmm. we we actually write down what we were feeling in the moment. Like we can get into generationally what we've sort of come into this experience with, and we try to burn it in order to let the water cross under the bridge for us to start this new life. But the reason I don't have a lot of hands on the birth experience or the postpartum at all is because as long as the baby and the mom are co-regulating, the likelihood that something is bad is going to happen is extremely low. And I think you'll appreciate this because from the chiropractor standpoint, 
you guys talk a lot about the nervous system, mm-hmm. but I think most of us medical people, we usually think sympathetic and parasympathetic, you know, the gas pedal and the brake pedal. But when you look at it a little bit more um, with like a little bit more of a fine tooth comb, you, you, you discover that this vagal system is so broad and I don't know if you're familiar with doctors Monique Andrews and Tamara McIntyre. They're um, like some of my best friends. Yeah. Is that how we were yes. interacting? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. the, the, one of the beautiful things that I learned from taking their trainings, and, and this of course is based on Stephen Porges's work with polyvagal, but you know, you hear all these theories and like you start putting into practice and you're like, this fucking makes every bit of sense. Like every little bit of this is so needed in OBGYN care, but just for your listeners who aren't familiar first trimester, the baby develops this lower part of their vagal tone, right? They get, they have a low heartbeat. It's like sixties to eighties, kind of like our own heartbeat. And then the second trimester, it ramps up like way, like 180, like it's super high. The sympathetic tone just drives the heart rate up. And then third trimester happens. And then you get this like kind of equilibration in the 110 to 160 range. Right. And that that's where the ventral vagal part of our nervous system develops, but it continues into six months into your postpartum period. So this baby being co-regulated with mom and not in an incubator and not being pulled away moments after birth and have sharp needles stuck or pieces of their penis cut off and all of this, that co-regulation in the moments to hours to days to months after almost guarantees that your baby's going to be okay. So when you're talking co-regulation, are you talking, you know, skin to skin? Yeah. Breastfeeding, low stimulation. Yeah. Just mothery. Like the, the like beautiful little things we say, we're smelling them. They're on our chest and they're breathing with us. Like you can actually feel the baby's breath and it's very fast, but if you start breathing with them, you can actually kind of slow them down and their heart rate starts to become a little bit more regulated with you. And slowly over time, their nervous system becomes fully intact. But if but we don't- Not until six months. Not until at least six months. Yeah, I mean- I, Frankly, I kind of feel like we're still sort of relying on co-regulation as adults, and we can easily get out of that. You fall down the autonomic ladder and you end up in a stable state, right? Uh So that's why we go to chiropractors. We want to make sure that the nervous inputs and outputs, let's say just to the viscera, that they're working okay. If you have a a nervous system that's dysregulated, you have a greater chance of dying or or living a shorter life. Your baby has a higher chance of developing SIDS and some other things. Mm -hmm. I didn't usually, I didn't really believe in SIDS, but then it made sense that why preterm babies actually have a higher rate of this, which is um, that they're, they're generally not with their moms and they haven't developed that ventral vagal component of their nervous system. They're in an, they're in an incubator. And they're getting formula and all this other junk, but they're not with their mom. And their mom is their like anchor. It grounds them. It, it actually keeps them here. Otherwise their astral is going to float off into outer space and the baby's lifeless. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting a little esoteric here, but, but truthfully, this nervous system thing is far more important than what the neurologists say. It's actually far, far more of a gift for a mom and baby to be sitting there together, even if the baby is doing a little bit of grunting or needs dried off or whatever, keep the baby on their chest. Cause you're, you're taking them from the amniotic universe where they're sitting centimeters away from the aorta hearing. Mm. And now they're in this scary environment and people are sticking them with things and bright lights and masks. And it's like, just get me back in the uterus, right? Well, we, the best we can do is put her on your chest and let you guys co-regulate one another. And it's also, surprise, also good for mom's nervous system, which is why it's co-regulatory. When moms aren't able to hold their babies, whether it's a dead baby, it's a NICU baby or whatever, a CPS comes and takes your baby, 
that is actually harmful to to the maternal well-being as well and the paternal like like the dads are a part of this too so there's so much there that going back to your original question you can't do that in the hospital environment that's not what we do in the hospital we don't worry about co-regulation we worry about keeping the baby breathing and uh whatever their heart beating right but again that's not a healthy baby that might be a living baby but not necessarily the healthiest baby you i mean so it seems like in my world it seems like nervous system regulation is becoming much more commonly talked about. I mean, chicks on TikTok are talking about, you know, like yeah, I'm talking about that shit. <laughs> so do you see, and it probably won't happen fast, but like with the knowledge, with nervous system, with co-regulation, this the science and information becoming much more mainstream, do you see hospitals having to adapt? No. Well, that was not the answer I wanted. <laughs> Shit. How do we get out of this? Like, you know, I mean, honestly, I kind of view this like a, so if we remove it from birth, if we go to like politics, you know, where we're like, oh, this two-party system isn't working. It's like, yeah, we need a third candidate. Well, we're never going to have a third party candidate. So talking about like, well, hundred percent of people are not going to birth out of the hospital. Yeah. So we're just going to yeah. pretend that that's not the answer. How do we, how does this shape out? What's your prediction for the next 10, 20 years? Yeah. Usually people ask me, how do we change the system? Or whatever. And it's like, guys, I don't fucking know. But what mm -hmm. I do know is you can make this system that is preying on your uh, tendency to live a less than stellar life. And I don't mean like go and buy expensive ground, you know, ground meat or bone marrow or whatever. I mean, like they don't really, they're not compelled for you to have an exceptional birth. They're relying on your fear of, of something bad happening in order to go into the hospital and have a birth, which is why 98 to 99% of babies in the United States are still being born in the hospital. So the most disruptive thing we can do to this Leviathan is to take care of ourselves, find practitioners with whom we have great chemistry. It may not even be me, but find the person that's really right for you. Find your whole care team and have your own birth. It's empowering. It's healing for a lot of women. Um, a lot of families feel like they finally kind of grasp the sovereignty, this concept where there is great freedom in just saying, no, thank you. I'm going to do it my way. And that all doesn't always guarantee you're not entitled, in other words, to have a good outcome. But when we have more people experiencing that and sharing those stories in conversations just like this, it's going to be hard for the system to not change when more and more women are embracing the opportunity of what a home birth in their home environment where the practitioner takes off their shoes before they come in or you know doesn't walk in and say here's how things are going we're going to start this medicine and do this instead they're like on your terms and they're trying to do their best to find a way to get you through this when more women have that experience and are talking about that experience and we talk about co-regulation and why it's so important to leave the baby on the chest like simple free things we can do all the other stuff. Just wait, wait until tomorrow when we can start having people appreciate through direct experience what this feels like, not the data. What does it feel like for you? Then I think more and more people start opting out of paying into that model and the model is going to be compelled to change. We saw this happen with like birth tubs. You want a birth tub? Sure. Like don't birth with those silly midwives. We have a birth tub here. It's not the same experience, but it's, they would never have done that had people not of said Of course you can be in the birth tub, unless oh. we have to monitor the fetus's heart rate, <laughs> yeah. and you can't be. So you just get to look at that birth right. tub. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, what I'm hearing you say, or like, you know, 
what that brought up for me is like, oh, no, no, no. The question isn't how do we fix birth? It's like the answer is we don't. We have to empower humans, all yeah. humans, men and women, to go, you're the one in charge of your health. You're right. the one in charge of your outcomes and your quality of life. So this is so much more than just birth because then it goes into like, well, how do we get parents to realize that they don't need to be doing 76 vaccines within the first couple of years of life? Like, well, we don't, we don't go about it through pharmacy. We go through yeah. empowering and educating people to go like your quality of life is on you. But I think we, I mean- is yeah. there like a class that they teach you in like med school year one? All right, you said you couldn't get easily offended where like they tell you that you're God and that like you carry the weight of the world and everybody looks up to you. Like when did we start just like worshiping MDs and their recommendations? Like, yeah, because well, that's what needs to break a little bit is like. Yeah. yeah, I know your MD said that and that's okay. That's his experience or that's her experience, but like also this. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said his and her experience because a lot of people are like, this is why I go to a female OB and it's like, <laughs> no. OB, you're, you're in for a rough ride if you think that the female OB really is thoughtful about some of this. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but what I can say is that when you're going through all this medical training, you've invested all this money, you like literally are the cream of the crop, academically speaking, in our society. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that doctors are smarter, but in order to get through that process, you have to do a fuck ton of work. Yeah. And it, and it, there's it's no different for dentists or whatever else, but it's just never ending where you are like pushed to your limit over and over. Oh, you you thought that was a lot of work? Here's twice that amount of work. And then we double that. And then we double that until... At the you get to the residency training point, and there's two principles that that uh, really permit you to continue in the process because nobody's an expert after they they leave med school. That's the beginning of your training, you know, entering residency. And if you admit you don't know something, or if you admit failure having done something wrong, like you are training, but you better damn well make it clear that you've never made a mistake. Like you are conditioned to never admit that you don't know something or that you made a mistake. Because once you do, you end up in the principal's office. I was the chief who was always taking responsibility for the junior residents because it was like, hey, they're under my watch. They screwed up and I have to take responsibility. Oh, this guy's not cut out. He's making all these mistakes. And it's like, guys, if you had any sensibility, you would realize that we trainees are broken people and we need you to throw us a fucking bone once in a while. That's mm -hmm. the first thing. Because otherwise, be, not being able to admit that you're wrong or that you don't know something, you never learn anything more, which is why OBGYNs are still doing things the way that they've done for 60 years. The second thing is that as a surgeon, we are surgeons, 70% of our training is in surgery, not just C-section. That's a small part of our surgeries. We did 500 of those. We did 500 of other surgeries of all sorts. What other surgeries? And hysterectomy, oophorectomy, oh, injectomy, uh, abortion care. Oh, uh, Hold yeah. knife, bone, leap, reconstruction of the vagina and vulva, bladder surgery. I mean, like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. We're surgeons. And if you're in a room of other surgeons, you need to be the one who's best at wielding that scalpel. Otherwise, it's unethical for you to be the one holding it. Think about that. If you're like life and death here, if there is somebody else that's better at doing the surgery, you need to give them the scalpel. But then how do you get practice? You act like you're the best fucking surgeon in the room. 
for four years, a hundred hours per week, you are slowly polishing off your ego so that you emerge victorious, the best version of any surgeon anybody's ever been so that you can ethically hold the scalpel. That's it. That's the problem. So that's where they get the God complex. And when you have invested so much money, you kind of feel like in time, you've sacrificed your 20s, maybe even your teens mm -hmm. trying to get into med school and residency and all the applications and all the multiple choice tests and all the standardized tests. And I mean, it's just exhausting. You feel like you're, you, you're, oh, you're owed something by society. And for somebody to question what you want to do because of something they read on Google, fuck you. Right. Which I mean, which I think we all kind of, understand yeah. when it's like okay. yeah 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 but yeah. i mean and i say it like that i'm putting i i'm speaking from the general population of a yeah. like i get it guys like i understand that you want things to change and you don't feel like you have any power to change it i get it doctors i i hear you and i don't accept it i hear it but i don't accept it so did you did we answer what your thoughts are what's going to happen 10 20 years from now with the hospitals and births like oh, so far oh. i don't like i don't like the trend i'm on <laughs> like like uh, i said when i started 13 years ago there were six different hospitals with really good we had a like a general practice doc yeah. <laughs> like it was, you know but what do you think's going to happen you know i think um i think there's a lot of people who can't access medical education i'm going to start by kind of dreaming up what the ideal scenario would be okay. and that would be better doctors right who are not just surgeons they're not just smart people they are deeply invested in seeing this thing get better and in being willing to say, I, I was wrong. I need to change it. Birth control is a great example. Like we got to change something around the amount of birth control we're giving out. I'm willing to say, I don't really appreciate how depression and anxiety works. I better go and find some other tools. Like that's ultimately what I would like to see. Cause these are good people. Like these are good people. Mm -hmm. You don't do all of that sacrificing as a bad person. So this right. idea that doctors are monsters, like get it out of your head. Some of them are, but some farmers are also monsters. Absolutely. Right. right. So for about a hundred years now, we've, we've been sort of towing this line that was set forth by the Flexner report and the Carnegie's and Rockefeller's of the world, which really essentially turn this into a business. We have to get it out. We have to get business interests and corporate interests out. Everything needs to revolve around what this person needs in order to optimize the outcome. And we need to redefine what that outcome looks like. So it would be really, really nice if medical education was, was free. And the reason it's not free and that these medical programs are, are taking in so much money is because pharmaceutical companies are driving what our education is. And then they charge us an arm and a leg in order to reap as much government money towards them, which comes in the form of loans and interest, make all of that free and get pharmaceuticals out of medical education. And you might see some more lectures around how people can do this without breaking their budget, eating healthy, sleeping more, moving well. Um, we might bring in some chiropractors and midwives in order to, to start early on in medical education, teaching people who are here for the right reason. Um, there's easier ways to get rich, guys. If you're out there putting in your, your residency applications, there is far easier ways to get rich than being a doctor. So if you're doing this for the right reasons, and I feel like I have maintained that identity, you don't really care what you're paid. All that you really care about is finding good people that can take care of your people the best. And you put all of the other stuff aside. And guess what? When you do that, you end up with so much more wealth through community and connection than you ever dreamed imaginable uh, or dreamed possible through the lens of materialism.
So we need to do a better job of selecting med students. We need to decrease the access um, to get into these programs. And we need to all around, I think, reimagine what a good outcome in maternity care looks like. I mean, I'll start there, but we could get into yeah. system racism and everything. Else. There are so many issues there. Yeah. Okay. So where can people, I mean, you barely touched on the born free method, but where can people find more of you? Um, because we did, we didn't talk about HPV. We didn't talk about birth control. <laughs> like, so for people who want to hear you talk on that, luckily you have a podcast. Um, yeah. And so talk about where people can get more of you. So there's a lot of conversations just like this, where I bring in people that I feel I can learn from. I mean, there's there's a little, you know, um, a part of the solution right there. Like, I don't know about this. Can you teach me about this? Okay, now I understand polyvagal theory and holy shit, I can understand why it's important to co-regulate the baby. That's what that podcast is all about. It's called the Holistic OBGYN. For practitioners, I have another podcast called the OBGYN podcast. It's separate. But, you know, frankly, if you go to belovedholistics.com, you're going to find everything there. We are enrolling um, in the coming weeks for the Born Free Method reboot, where we've added a ton of content, including embryology, pregnancy loss, um, uh, ways to, to mitigate disaster if you decide to have a free birth um, from shoulder dystocia to hemorrhage and, and everything in between. So there's a lot in there. Bornfreemethod.com is where you can go to um, apply for enrollment. And then you jump on a call with me or Sarah and we get you in and you're off to the races. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, we'll have to find some event where Dr. Mo and Tamara are at, and we'll just go surprise them and take them to dinner. Cause they're, they're too, aren't they amazing? They're amazing. Yeah, yeah. We like to claim them very much. Right. We're chiropractors are very proud to be like, they're chiropractors. They're chiropractors. Yeah. You know, you know, they're chiropractors, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, they're also like badass, like women too. Like, oh, they really yeah. don't give a shit about what people think. Like they just, they just know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. And I love when people show up like oh, that. Oh, gosh. They're just Shout out to doctors Mo and Mac. <laughs> I know. I know. Thank you so much, Dr. Nathan. I really appreciated this. Um, yeah, we'll have to have you back for a more offensive. I'll drink a couple glasses of wine first. Is that what oh, the ob Gino wino podcast is about? Yeah, every episode we cover the practice guidelines from ACOG and I give my own little spin on how I would interpret them and utilize them. And then I pair it with a bottle of wine, so. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Sometimes I'm, I'm drinking it while I'm recording and I start like slurring towards the end and I'm like, I got to stop recording. This is getting gross. Your editor is just like, I cut you off after when you opened the second bottle. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, she slayers. Until next week. Bye. Hey, She Slayers, if you're like me, your health matters, but life can get in the way. I completely get it. Meet Sunlight and Saunas, which is a game changer for your health. We used to put off getting an infrared sauna in my family and thinking it was going to be too pricey and complicated. But here's the deal. America needs to catch up on the whole sweating and detox routine. Infrared saunas do wonders for the immune system, detoxing, aging, sleep, and muscle recovery. And as a chiropractor, I've seen it help regulate nervous systems and patients in between their adjustments. So in 2023, my husband and I got serious about nervous system regulation, and he dove into cold plunges. I tried it, not going to lie, didn't like it at all. I would rather spend 20 minutes in a cozy sauna than two minutes in ice water. So after tons of research, I chose sunlight and saunas for our home. 
We have the Amplify 2 in Basswood and it is perfect. The goal is to bring this into our clinics in 2024 as well, expanding patient health journeys without more manpower and of course, bringing in some more revenue. For SheSlay's listeners, snag up to $600 off Asana and here's the bonus. It stacks on top of any Sunlighten discount that they also have going. Just go to get.sunlighten.com forward slash she slays or hit the link below to request your pricing guide. And fellow chiropractors, practice what you preach, invest in your health. Now let's get back to today's episode. When I ask other chiropractors what three things they need in order to be a successful practice, they say a table, an EHR, and an insight scanning system. I know for me, using scanning technologies was a game changer for my clinic. Once I started scanning, I had a clearer picture of a patient's health status and the ability to measure their progress over time. With the insight, I moved from just trying to treat symptoms to real care plans, and I could actually get patients to understand and sign on. CLA has made it easier than ever to get into scanning. They have affordable financing options and easy-to-use education tools that make scanning a no-brainer. So here's my theory. If you get an insight and then set aside seven minutes a day for seven days using CLA's online video training, you'll be communicating chiropractic with newfound confidence and certainty within a week. And a major bonus, you'll be able to amplify your social media presence by including neurological scan views and success stories that will attract a ton of patients and their families who are searching for the expert to manage their health and performance. If this sounds like something you'd like to know more about, go to insightcla.com forward slash SheSlays. You'll find lots of great information about scanning while reviewing the SheSlays preferred pricing deals. Yeah, I got you a deal. They'll also send you your free getting into scanning guide that includes a snapshot of CLA's training resources. Mm -hmm. 